0: Hello, and welcome to One Stop Co-Op Shop, your one-stop for board game news and reviews. Hold on to your pants, it's time for a special episode. Welcome to One Stop Co-Op Shop. Steve here with... Mike! We're doing a little crossover. Mike and Steve uh, friend hour right now. It's gonna be amazing. Continuing on the horror theme month. That's right. Welcome to October, part two even though we had a week that was not horror themed <laughs> now we have two in a row
1: yeah today we'll be covering final hour the new arkham game from fantasy flight games
0: is it an arkham game i guess we can discuss that later <laughs> yeah that might come up in discussion so. <laughs> and then after that we're gonna have a design discussion on enemy movement and how different uh, co-op games and solo games might handle moving enemies around with the ai But before we get into that, we do want to thank some of our Patreon patrons who are supporting the channel. Thank you all for your support. Specifically today, we are thanking Joshua Davis and EKBH, who are both co-op MVPs. And then uh, we should really have an extra level for this guy. He is far and away the highest contributor currently we have on Patreon. Very big thank you to Eric Maxim. Uh, eric anything you want us to do for you you know just we'll, we'll send a game to you whatever you like <laughs> you can have your own special patreon level but yeah but big uh, thank you for your support the last few months and also anyone at the co-op mvp level gets to have us read a message on the air so here comes one at you this is from jason burt and he says shout out to everyone in the slack the best little community out there And yeah, we haven't mentioned it that much in some of the recent episodes, but if you're not on the Slack, get on there. Uh, There's a link in every podcast episode and a link in every YouTube video we do. It is uh, an amazing community. I just... I don't even have to speak sometimes, I can just go on there and see the cool conversations that happen and the great games that get brought up and the amazing advice for learning games and teaching games and resources, just uh, such a fabulous community, feels like my little uh, board gaming family on the web, so thank you to all our Slack members. And with that, let's uh, jump into Final Hour. Yeah, let's do it! So the game Final Hour is set after
1: a group of presumably cultists or someone has opened a world and a great old one has emerged. You are running around a university and trying to figure out how to seal the gate with only one hour left, because if you're not able to seal the gate with this one hour of game time, essentially, the world basically ends. So in other Arkham games, you're building up to trying to prevent the gate from actually open. And this game, hey, you're already too late. The gate's open. You gotta do your best to seal it.
0: Yeah, it's, it's kind of like that that final turn of a bad game of Eldritch Horror or Arkham Horror where you didn't stop them from waking up and now you gotta fight this desperate battle. Except here, it's not about the battle. It's about, like Steve said, uh, getting that gate closed. Now, in terms of how the game actually works, uh, we do have a great playthrough on the channel from Colin of the Solo Mode. And I did a review of the solo and co-op. I'm going to focus mostly on co-op tonight with uh, our review here. So in the co-op play, because solo is a little bit different, each uh, player has a character with a unique action deck, and they also have uh, four priority cards in their hand. Priority cards are numbered 1 through 30. And what happens is, uh, on a player's turn, they draw the top card of their action deck. So no choice, whatever. That is the action card they're going to play. But they put uh they don't show it to anybody else and they're not allowed to talk during this section of the game. There is limited communication here. They put that card down and they put one of their priority cards on it and redraw. So they always have four priority or priority cards. So uh the other players can see the priority card, and the thing is you're gonna get four cards played. And so if you have two players, you'll each play two action cards. Uh, if you have four players, you'll each play one, three player kind of uh goes around the table. But you have these four cards played, and each card has a top action and a bottom action. And, uh, the top action is exclusively good in most cases, and the bottom action usually has some pretty terrible stuff, although it could have some bonuses as well. Uh, the main one being moving around the board, which has, like, these little paths between locations, and, uh, the main effect on bottom actions is usually investigating, which means you flip over these little clue tokens, and the top action is mostly movement and killing monsters, because the main, like, threat in the game are all these monster tokens, But the thing is, uh, the two lowest priority cards, like closest to one, those are the ones that you're going to get the top action for, and the two highest priority cards are going to be the lower action. So basically, without communicating, you're trying to set it up such that the least bad, bad actions happen, and the most good, good actions happen. And once you've uh, done all those, you resolve the cards in order, uh, killing monsters, moving around, investigating, uh, spawning monsters and moving monsters, all the activation of monsters happens through your cards, not through some end-of-turn effect. And then at the end of the turn, you do smod More Monsters. Based on the cards you played, the uh, great old one you're fighting might do some terrible stuff to you. The basic idea is at the end of any turn, you can try to close the gate. You can say, we know the spell to close the gate. And it's going to be based on these little icons. But the thing is, you don't know which icons you need. And the clues you reveal, it's kind of like a clue of the game where there's some clues down at the bottom that you can't see. You're trying to eliminate the other clues so you know what those two clues are. And uh, if the cards you have, when you try to seal the gate, match up with the clues enough, then you win. If uh, there's too many monsters on the board, or if you fail to uh, solve the spell correctly, then you lose. So that might have been a little bit too much detail, but that's uh, basically the play of the game. It's pretty straightforward, pretty streamlined.
1: And to review this, we're going to do the top five things you need to know about the game. So first time listening, how we do this is we pick five things. We start with our least important item and work our way all the way to number one, our most important item to know about the game. And we'll talk about whether this is pro or con or however we want to rate it there. So that said, um,
0: Mike, do you want to start off with your number five? Yeah, I'll jump right in. So my number five is a con for the game, uh, my only pure con, and that's the clarity of the board. So I had mentioned that there are these paths between buildings. But the thing is, some buildings won't have a path that investigators can walk on. It'll only have a red arrow that monsters can cross. But the board is kind of dark, the arrows aren't as big and obvious as I would want, the colors aren't as obvious as I would want, and I'll so I'll often, like, try to cheat accidentally and not realize, oh, my investigator can't move across that giant lake, because uh, that's a red arrow for monsters, that's not a path for me. The bigger issue is that when you move a bunch of monsters, and they'll often move multiple spaces, because the thing is, like, each location only has a certain number of spots for monsters— So if uh, one location is filled and a monster tries to move through there, they move along to the next and the next. So you might be moving uh, in one enemy activation, like... Uh, I don't know, six or seven monsters, and you might move them each two or three times, depending on how crowded the board is, so the fact that the arrows aren't too obvious of which location they go to, and the colors aren't as clear as I would want, can really be kind of a frustrating thing. It doesn't bother me as much as I play the game more, but definitely, especially my first few plays, it made what should have been a pretty simple enemy activation, enemy movement, hint hint, design discussion, a step. It made it a little bit tougher than it should have been. So that's my number five, a con, the board, Clarity.
1: Yeah, I agree completely with this one. I had a similar experience. I thought the board itself looks... I mean, the artwork's really good. I The mean, Fantasy Flight does have really good artwork in a lot of cases. But this one, the it wasn't as functional as I needed it to be. The arrows, they're... It's hard to describe the arrows. They're like cut in half. So you only see like one side of the arrow in a lot of cases. And they're kind of outlined and... You can kind of make them out in some cases. In other cases, you have to stop and like like pause because it kind of blends in with the background or it's not as, I don't know, it doesn't pop out as much.
0: Yeah, this is one case where as nice as the artwork is, I wish it had been maybe even a little bit worse. <laughs> Just more obvious what was going on. It reminded me a tiny bit of, uh, this is one I've only played with Steve, but uh, Pandemic, the uh, Fall of Rim, is that what it's called? Correct. Yeah, th- that one also has, like, movement with arrows along the board, and that's also, th- that's that's better than it is here. But even that one, I had a little bit of trouble sometimes, like, visualizing for myself where the armies were going to go.
1: Yeah, and it's the uh, point about moving your heroes around the board, your heroes move based upon the artwork, not by a iconography, essentially. So iconography is only for the monsters, and you define the pattern up front. And it doesn't make sense why you wouldn't want to continue that pattern for the other elements in the game. Uh, This again back to a little bit of user experience thrown in there. But yeah, yep, I agree with you. It's not a huge factor because, I mean, you pause a little bit. You can digest what you need to do on the board. You might make a mistake here or there. But for the most part, it didn't really hamper our play too much.
0: Okay, well, that's good to hear. How about you, Steve? What's your number five? Number five, I'm starting off with
1: a pro, and that is the top-bottom decision on these cards. In Mike's description of the game, you have this player deck, and all these player decks are unique for each player, which is pretty cool. But the really interesting about it is you draw only one card which, you know, oh man, that sounds kind of boring, I don't have a choice. But you do have a choice because each of the cards has a cool top effect, which is normally like combat focused or something, some cool, good ability. And the bottom one is about gathering clues and normally something really bad. And reading this cards, and some of the cards in the, in your deck are just horrible. Like you just absolutely want to avoid them. Other ones are like, this is pretty bad. I, I guess I can let this go and... And that this dilemma of like my man how do I how do I need to approach this to to best play this character out and what do I need in this particular instance because some cases you are forced to do the bottom ones actually you're forced to do bomb ones of, of some of the cards but sometimes you want to play a bomb card simply because you need to get those clues without getting those clues you can't really have a good estimation to try to win the game you'll be'll you'll be kind of run into a, a corner there. And so I I really like that dynamic. It's in Gloomhaven to an extent. Um, This is kind of a a variant of that concept, but it it feels its own as well. But yeah, top and bottom. I like it.
0: Yeah, that's higher on my list, so I'll I'll hold my thoughts for now, but I like it too. (laughs) Uh, My number four is a mix, and this is focused on the the enemies and the great old ones, which, again, kind of combined, are the, the big threat in the game. And enemies really are the main thing that is a threat. Like, literally, the board fills up with enemies if you aren't keeping them in check enough, and enemies can damage your investigators, which is another loss condition. So that is, like, your main thing. The reason this is a positive and a negative, it kind of depends on what kind of game you want. Because the positive side is how streamlined these things are and how straightforward they are and how easy they are to learn, even for a younger player. Because there's only three types of enemies, basically. They just have, uh, they can move... They can damage you or they can damage the space and take away the like blocks that those enemies can occupy, make the board feel tighter. And that's pretty much it. Like they have different life totals and a couple of special enemies will have like a combo of those icons, but it's very basic and basic can be bad because if you're coming from like Arkham or Eldritch and you want big variety and special abilities and this ghost is totally different from this warlock is totally different from a Chthonian, you're not getting that here. And then a similar kind of thing for the great old ones, there's uh, three of them in the base box, and they each have a different uh, special enemy that's keyed with them, and then they have these different special powers that are activated based on how many icons came out when you played your priority cards. So that's pretty cool. And, like, one of them is more focused on destroying the board. One of them is more focused on hunting you down and doing sanity damage. But in the end, none of the effects feel that different. So I like it for streamlining. I think it works well enough. I do think playing one great old one versus another is different. And drawing one enemy versus another in the bag will make the game feel tougher. But overall, they aren't that interesting. They aren't that varied. So, you know, if you're not getting other stuff out of the game, this is certainly not going to be a big selling point for you.
1: Yeah, I would agree with that as well. Um, I feel like the monsters are the main threat like you you said. I like how they're simple to resolve because there's normally a lot of them on the board <laughs> especially towards the later part of this game. The board gets kind of crazy so it's nice to be able to quickly look at them and resolve that effect quickly and just moving on. The great old ones they were kind of interesting a little bit but I kind of wanted more from them because this is supposed to be a big bad boss guy and I just felt like they were a little, I don't know, passive. It wasn't as much really threatening us on that front. They can be pretty threatening on some of the effects they resolve, but you can kind of control that a little way, and I might talk about it a little bit later. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: No, I have similar things to say later, especially my final thoughts. But yeah, Steve, what's your number four?
1: My number four is a pro, and that is the enemy ramp-up. So what I mean by that is when you play this game, you will be shuffling up these gate tokens, and you kinda of make a pile of them instead of on the board and off the side. At the end of each round, and on the how uh, the bad guy phase essentially, you'll be drawing one of the gate tokens, flipping over, and then adding this gate token to one of these gates out on the board. So there's there's basically a ritual center, that's the main focus of the the main gate that's opening for the great old one essentially coming through. But there's also these other gates around the board that are spawning these monsters from. So what you do is you'll take one of these tokens, add it to that spot, and then you'll spawn monsters based upon the number of gate tokens there. So when you start off, you have only one there. You draw one, you add two there. Cool. Pretty soon you have three and then four. And then the next one you add there, it just adds more and more monsters just pouring out of these gates. And it really ramps up the tension as these gates are are just getting overwhelmed. These locations are getting overwhelmed. And I like that a lot. Really, really fun.
0: Yeah, yeah, I agree. Uh, one of my biggest complaints in co-op games is when they don't ramp up enough. You'll hear us talk about that often, and this game is not of that problem at all. It definitely felt like it would always get tense and wild by the end. All right, my number three is very similar to my number four. It's another one that's kind of a pro and a con at the same time, and that's the uh, unique characters you play in the game. So I'm not focusing on the element that Steve focused on yet, the top-bottom thing, but just the fact that you have these unique decks for each investigator— there are six in the core game, and, you know, it is a fairly small game. I don't know if they'll ever expand this one. I kind of doubt it. So there's uh, six Investigators. They each have their own deck, and they are unique. You know, they do feel different. Like uh, Lily Chen, I think her name is. She just does, like, wild damage to monsters. But then uh, you got, uh, I think Norman is his name. He, like, can teleport around with his spells. So if you know the Arkham file games, if you've uh, seen these characters in Eldritch or Arkham Horror, they're going to feel kind of familiar. You'll be like, oh, yeah, they they capture the theme of that person. They're doing stuff that I've seen before. But the thing is, kind of like with the enemies, it's so simple. It's like move, do damage, heal yourself, maybe uh, move monsters around. Like there's maybe like five or six effects for them to play with. And I think they did a decent job making each investigator feel different. Like, I I do think it the game does play out differently. Like, you'll be able to deal damage better or investigate better depending on who's in the game. But in the end, it also, again, feels very, very streamlined. And I don't think that... uh that that part's necessarily in the game's favor here because uh, you're not going to feel like you're getting a ton of variety from game to game. You're not going to feel like, you know, on your 10th play, you're discovering new things about this character's deck. Like, no, it's, it's, it's not that kind of game. That's not where its strengths lie. That's not a terrible thing, especially for a small game, like a fairly inexpensive game like this. But yeah, again, you're not gonna be sold based on how fun it is to try out different characters. The investigative like aspect of the game is not here in that way. It's not like a Blacklist game or Sentinels of the Multiverse or like trying out a new deck in Legend of the Ring or <laughs> Legend of the Rings, Lord of the Rings. Um, it's it's just you know it's fine. It's okay.
1: Yeah, these uh, characters they I th- I would agree. I think they did a pretty good job making feel distinct, unique, and I do like the abilities they have in there. They felt for thematic for what these, I know, heroes or investigators are being built around for like the Arkham Files. I was able to recognize some themes that were copied from other games, right? As they keep the same back, uh, similar backstory, and how these characters kind of play. So that was cool. It's also a little strange that like you don't have that that action or that that ability to um, choose, you know, like hey, I want to move two spaces over here. You'll draw the card and you may want to do the bottom one to move, but maybe maybe you don't because now it's really bad. So now you have to you really want to do the top part. So it's kind of weird how that forces you into these other decisions, which you're, may not be the most optimal at the time. Well, let me rephrase that. They're not optimal in the sense that if I had any choice I could do, I would do this one action. But now it's optimal in the sense that like, oh man, I can't do this or I have to do this based upon these other conditions tied with that action. So that's pretty cool. I liked it. It was kind of interesting. I'm with you on that. Was this one?
0: All right, lots of agreement. I feel like there's there's the shoes got to drop at some point. Uh, so mm-hmm. you've had a lot of pros. How about your number three? We got another pro.
1: And with pro for number three, yep, this one's a pretty big one. I like this one a lot. I love it when they have multi-use cards in this. And this, what I mean by that is the the multi-use of the priority cards. And so the main use of these priority cards is you know you look at your action card, you'll flip it face down, and then you'll put one of these four cards you have on on top of this card, and you'll put it in such a way so that Everyone at the table can see what number you put on it. So one aspect of these cards is they have a number. And I think it's like 1 to like 30 something. And so you know what the range is. You kind of have an idea of if someone plays a low number, they may want to like really do this or high number. Maybe they really want to do the bomb part. If it's in the middle, maybe who knows what they're going to do. So that's cool. But they're also used for activating the great old one. So that's interesting. So on this card, you have what are called omen icons on them. They're kind of like, I don't know, like weird arrows with eyeballs in them. But what you do is after everyone plays all the priority cards and resolve all the action cards, you'll gather up all these priority cards and count up the number of omen icons you have. And the number of the icons you have will refer to the chart on the great old one. And that's going to trigger his abilities. And so if you have a lot of these omen icons, it's normally a pretty bad effect. If you happen to put zero omen icons out there, the great omen will literally do nothing, which is pretty awesome. Very, very hard for it to ever come into play, but it'll happen. The cool thing about it too is these priority cards, they're weighted in such a way so the lower end and higher end of the priority deck tends to have the more omen cards on it. So in other, so other words, if you are really wanting to go first or last, and you're going to bite the bullet and now have a bigger effect coming from the great old one. So that's really cool. But that's not it. The other thing these cards have is icons on them. And so these icons are used for the final guess in the game. So what you'll be doing is you'll be looking at the party cards you have in your hand and you'll be essentially discarding, well not discarding, but setting to the side into the pile. And this is going to be your guess your, or your bet essentially on what the final ritual symbols are. And so not only do you have to manage these numbers, these omens, but at some point in the game you start—you have to keep some of these in your hand because you need to be able to win the game. So While this is like a number two or number one, I really want to play it, but you know what? that has got that icon I need, and I need to keep this in my hand. I can't afford to play it. And so there's different ways of using this one card in this game is really, really clever. I enjoyed it quite a bit.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, again, you're you're stealing some of my thunder here, Steve. Uh, I got some things to say about these uh, later on, but I guess I'll have a lot less to say now. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So, So I have a sneaking suspicion, just based on things you said on the Slack and stuff, that we are ships passing in the night. You know, I I started con and then mix mix, and you know maybe I'm on an upward trajectory. And you've been pro pro pro, and I feel like uh, we're gonna fall off sometime here. But my number two is uh, a big pro for me, and I do want to say really clearly pro for me because um, this is a mechanic that I know from personal experience some gamers don't like. And the reason I say this, I mentioned this in the the video review too. This mechanic is almost point for point identical to the ending of uh, Salvation Road, Peter and My's first design that was published by uh, van Ryder games. And <laughs> just from having a ton of play testers play it, some people were like, this is awesome. And some people were like, this is the stupidest thing ever. Why do you even do this? So uh, for me, I love this, but just know right off the bat, you might hate this. And that is how the game ends. So Steve just went into it. It is this, uh, you know, final guess And the thing is, you're never, at least I've played the game a bunch and I've never, you're never going to have every clue revealed. So you're never going to know with 100% certainty that, yes, this is what I need. So it's always playing the odds. You're always like, oh, man, okay, if, if I keep these priority cards and a star comes out, we win. But if a star doesn't come out, we lose. All right, so I, uh, if, if we can get these cards to work out, we'll have a 75% chance to win. But if I do this better action for us and stop the monsters better, oh, man, we'll only have a 50% chance to win. But we don't know what kind of monsters will spawn, so maybe we'll be okay. We're, uh, let's see. So for me, that's uh, one of my favorite elements in gaming. I'm someone who loves uh, Galaxy Trucker. I'm someone who loves uh, Dawn of Peacemakers. I'm someone who loves, uh, you know, Space Alert. I love the idea and the chaos and the excitement, at least excitement for me, of uh, tossing my my choices in the air and having some element of randomness that makes it not 100% sure. That's why I like games that have some randomness. I am, generally speaking, not a pure puzzle, you know, solved condition game. So I love these endings. Every time I played the game, solo or co-op, always exciting. Even when, like, we were pretty sure we won. Even when we got, like, the percentage up to, like, 80%, we still had to hold our breath as we flipped that final token. It's like, ah, Jesus Christ, we didn't make it, you know? Um, But, but, so many people won't like this. So it's a pro for me, but I want to really caveat it and be like, hey... This might suck for your group, so, you know, watch some play videos. See, would I have felt like that was a positive experience if I lost there, or would I have hated the game forever if I lost? And, you know, the answer to that question is going to determine whether this is a pro for you or not. But for me, number two, love it, the uh, way the game ends and the uh, sort of suspense and excitement within that.
1: Yeah, I'd agree. I don't have a ton of suspense when we're flipping Well, maybe it would, but it's definitely there. It's just not... Overwhelming to me and some other games might have like more suspenseful like I tend to get really tense with rolling a dive in some cases Because it's just like man, it could be any of these results for here I tend to have a decent idea of you know what it's I think it's gonna be this one or this one like But like you said before you don't know exactly for, for sure what it's gonna be And so that's kind of fun. And the other thing that's really interesting is if you're playing with a bigger group they might be holding on to some of these cards that you're searching for. So you're dumping these other priority cards hoping <laughs> yeah. to find that symbol, but they have it. They may have a bunch of them, so maybe you're okay, maybe you're not, but you don't know until you get to that point.
0: In yeah, the that's true. You actually have suspense in what the other players have and not just what the tokens are. Yeah, I mean, I'll say that there's, there's a psychological difference, even if it's identical. There's a psychological difference between there is a physical object face down over there and it has a face and I can't see it yet and I'm going to flip it. There's a difference between that psychologically and rolling a die, which I know is random. Like, yes, both might give me a 75% chance of success, but the fact that one is predetermined and one is not, for me at least, makes all the difference in kind of the, the fun of the experience.
1: Yeah, it'll be that way until we get into a Schrodinger's token, right? So we don't <laughs> yeah, know right. it Until you look at it.
0: <laughs> the token is both a star and an hourglass. Good luck.
1: <laughs> <laughs> until you make an observation. So. All
0: right, uh, Steve, how about you? Uh, you got a con for us? You have a con for us. Go ahead.
1: <laughs> yep, my number two con is monster activation. And while these symbols on these cards I mentioned before, they're streamlined, they're easy to do, but there tend to be quite a few of them, and it can get confusing. And the, the problem I have with it is these paths. There's basically like three areas in the game, and these arrows will loop between or loop around these, these areas. And what can happen in the game, and has happened fairly frequently, is there'll be moving a monster around and he'll, he'll be like, okay, you need to spawn in this spot. But you know what? That spot's full. Move to the next spot. Okay, that spot's full. Can't move it there. Move it to the next spot. Okay, he'll put him there. And then the next guy will spawn in and it'll be, he'll move down the same chart and be like, oh, you know what? That spot's full. That spot's full. And then eventually you come back to where you started into like an infinite loop. Now, it's not an infinite loop in the exact sense that you're, you're stuck in that. It just means that that's a monster is going to appear at the, the site that the ritual's occurring. So there, there's an out to it. But when you get to that point, it just takes a while to like analyze it and figure this stuff out. And all the while, while you're acting these monsters, you are turning them sideways. At least I do it because that's what's recommended in the book. To keep track of which monsters have activated, which ones have moved, and which ones have done things. Because these guys are moving all over the place. And you can't really resolve them in order of locations. Because they might move from location to location. And you want to make sure you don't activate the same monster m- multiple times. And so it just takes a, a while to do this, and it's kind of kind of fiddly with them keeping track of the stuff and this infinite loop thing. It, it just pulled me out of the game. It was too mechanical, and I just kind of lost interest at that point. I, I think if this was cleaned up a bit, um, it would have been a lot better. I would like the game more from that aspect, but yeah, for me, this was definitely not a con.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you clearly, because my number five was pretty much a, a similar idea. I will say I never – so, so uh, I don't think we said this, but there's uh, 15 locations on the board, and they're divided into three, like, colors. So it's, like, the the green side and the purple side and whatever. Um, and whenever you activate monsters, you activate them based by color, and you go from lowest-valued location to highest. You'll activate location 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, or uh, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, or 11, 12, 13, 14, 15. Um, so I never felt like it was hard to remember which ones it activated, even when I had people like jumping around a bit, because I'm only going through five locations and, you know, at most I might have one monster I'd have to turn sideways. So I just might've had better luck like, killing monsters or better luck like, activating locations because I definitely never ran into that. But I, I do still agree that the actual movement of them is fiddly and like the iconography is not as good as it. Well, not really the iconography, the, the board design. So yeah, it, it wasn't a big deal for me. Clearly that's why I was a five but uh, agree that it was not uh, ideal. All right, so uh, my number one, another pro, which is <laughs> going to show why I like this game because I ended very positively. Uh, this is basically everything uh, Steve already said in his uh, number five, and I think it was, was it number three? You're your one about the priority cards?
1: Yeah, three is multi-use, yep.
0: Yeah, so yeah, just put all that together into a delicious stew, and that's what uh, the core gameplay loop is here for me. I love... That even though there is this nice injection of randomness in the game, and even though there is limited communication, so you can't talk to each other as much as you might prefer, um, I love that the puzzle is still so robust here, especially as the game advances and you have more monsters on the board and you have more clues discovered. As Steve was saying, I don't want to repeat him too much, but this is my number one, so I got to kind of give it its due share. Your priority cards, like you know, before you play a priority card, you think, what other priority cards have been played? Oh man, he played a twenty-six. That must be a pretty bad card. I, I guess I want to get below that, so that, uh, or I guess I want to get above that, so that, that happens. But oh man, I only have twenty-eight and twenty-nine, and then some really good cards in my hand. And oh crap, if I play one of these uh, omen symbols, then uh, the monster is going to do that really bad effect. If I can hold off, then he's not going to do that really bad effect. But oh crap, th- that's an hourglass. Hourglasses haven't shown up in the clue tokens yet. That might win us the game. I can't get rid of that card. So I find all those decisions incredibly interesting in both solo play and co-op, and then combined with what Steve said, the action cards. Yes, the effects are simple. If you go back to my number three, like, that's not too great. But the contrast between I activate all the green monsters and I, uh, you know, get to move twice and shoot somebody, that's awesome. So you combine that with the priority card and you get these really tough decisions. It's... uh, For good or worse, you know, better or worse, I would compare it to the Mind, but with gameplay attached to it, because I love the Mind. But let's be honest, it's not really much of a like game game. Because like I'm making these very nuanced decisions of when this value is the right value. You know, like ah, twenty two feels good here. But in this case, I have a ton of input from the board, from the action card I have, from the other players. You know, not verbal input, but I can see like what's happening. Um, that goes into this choice of what might seem like an arbitrary number. So I really, really love that. And I will say, because I think Steve's about to, to uh, you know, attack it based on other things he said, I, I personally love the limited communication in this game. Um, I think that it it amplifies this to a great extent, but I'm also someone who likes limited communication. I love Hanabi. I love the mind. I love magic maze. Like uh, if if a co-op game can force us to cooperate without words, I find that very intriguing in most cases. And here I think it was really great. Like I played a bunch with my wife and you know, just the groans or the cheers when things worked out the exact wrong or the exact right way. uh, It's awesome. I, I really enjoy that personally, but Steve, how do you feel? (laughs)
1: yeah you let into that and yep my number one con is too much restricted communication (laughs) and that's um specific to one thing in the rule book that just drove me up up the wall. and it's interesting when i made this list like most of these are you know i could maybe interchange them over time but this one i feel was far and above the rest of them just this one just really rubbed me the wrong way and so what i mean by that is like i i do like restricted communication a lot of games and this one, I really enjoyed the restric- restricted communication when you're looking at your player card, flip it face down, you have to play your priority card on top of it and you're trying to you know, see what other people play and get an idea of like, man, do I play just above him, just below him? How do I work this? Loved it. Very, very cool. You know, No problems there at all. What really bothered me was after you play all these party cards, you know what is going to be resolved on your card. So what, what I mean by that is... The two lowest priority cards, you'll resolve the top effect. The t- two um, highest priority cards will resolve the bottom effects. And so after the fourth person or really the fourth card is played, uh, you'll know if it's the top or the bottom of each card that you played. And you, you read your cards, so you know what it does. So here's where it really bothers me. I'm playing a co-op game. I like to work together. And the problem is... We resolve these these action cards, starting with the lowest priority, working with the highest. And so they'll flip over the card, and the card might say, Hey, you know, I can move. Cool. I'll move over to the green zone. Well, I already know what my card's going to do. My card might say, Hey, all these monsters in the green zone will move on attack. And technically, according to the rules, I can't say anything about that. And that drives me nuts. Like, I'm playing a co-op game. I want to help my fellow people. I don't want to be restricted from this. And it just seems like, Why? Why do this? Like... I, I play co-op games to be social to have fun and I like the challenge, but this is not a challenge. This is just hey, don't talk about your card until you flip it up. And that that just drove me up the walls. Like, no, get this out of here. Done with it.
0: But that that's I mean like literally we are diametrically opposed here, because that is the entire fun the chaos and the, like, fun of me, like, dreading and, like, oh, God, don't go over there. Oh, oh God, don't go over there. All the monsters are going to eat you, Steve. Get out of that location. But I can't tell you that that's what makes the game exciting. And you think it's the worst part? I, I, I mean, I, I can understand it. I can totally understand how a player would feel that way. But, yeah, it, it's just funny how different we are on this one. Like, literally, that is part of my number one. Like, when I sent my wife to be eaten by a shugoth or whatever, that was awesome. <laughs> But sorry, did, did, did you have any more to see, say on it, Steve? I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off.
1: No, you're good. And I will say that we did actually try the game with this pulled out. And I actually liked the game. It was fine. But with the game, with that rule in there, it's just not for me. Don't get out of here. Don't, I don't want I don't want to deal with that. I want to cooperate. And I felt like we're just kind of playing the game. and not really cooperating in that sense. I mean, you can, You can. I mean. don't get me wrong. You can cooperate with like, hey, you're by that clue. It might be good to go get that clue. But I want to... I know what's happening. I wanna be able to tell people that. In all these other restricted communication games, you don't have perfect information. And at this point you have perfect information, and you can't talk about it. And so that's for me is just a no no. It just drives me nuts.
0: I mean, but the thing is those other games are a little different because you're still resolving something here. Like I've not yet yes, my card is down, but as you already mentioned, I've not decided where I'm moving yet. So there's not perfect information yet. I I don't disagree I, I yeah, I don't agree with that. And the thing is like I I think even though even though you're presenting this as different from the other games I think it's the exact same issue people have with the mind have with Hanabi have with magic maze it can be a very frustrating experience when it's like just know what I'm doing you know <laughs> like I get I said I said red I said those three cards were red in Hanabi play them don't you understand I, I gave you a clue you're stupid why didn't you get it you know like that that, that kind of stuff happens in all these games so I think um yeah I, I don't think this is especially different. But I will say, uh, the fact that you can just take it out and suddenly you like the game, that's nice. Cause there's, there's nothing in the gate, like the cards itself that enforces any of this is just a line in the rule book. So that, that's good to hear that you were able to kind of, you know, fix it for yourself in a way, if you play <laughs> not by the rules, right? Exactly. So what makes this game different for
1: me from Hanabi and grizzled and magic maze, all those ones with limited communication is you're still able to communicate in that aspect or that part of the game. Like, in Grizzled, I'm communicating by playing certain cards down and how I'm acting out with withdrawing and doing other things. You get clues that way, and in you know uh, the mind, you get clues with my 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 gesturing, right, and how I'm presenting myself at the table and maybe some other ways how many cards have I have in hand and you know stuff like that. And so there's information to digest for that. For here. I don't have anything to go off of until, you know, we flip that card, and that just drives, drives me nuts.
0: I mean, I don't know. I don't agree. You, you've got the board state. If I see that you're one space away from green and you're an attacking character, then I have a pretty good idea that you're going to run in there and blow some people up. So if I play the activate green people and there's, like, five damage-dealing guys right there, I I feel like I've made a choice based on you, and I feel like I am cooperating. Or, in that case, horribly cooperating because <laughs> I just murdered you. <laughs> But anyway, let's get into our final thoughts. I, I think it's just a yep. sort of different uh, different perspective on it.
1: Exactly. There's maybe an issue you might agree with me or maybe agree with Mike, but I'll leave that to you guys to decide.
0: Yeah, and, and that does lead well into my final thoughts. Uh, for me, this is a really, really fun game. I was super surprised by it, especially because uh, coming out of Gen Con, uh, you know, we had a bunch of people there. And the opinions didn't seem super high on it from there. I know Colin likes it. But I think I might actually like it more than him. I don't know, Steve, you've played with him. Do you know where he kind of falls on this?
1: Well, I haven't played this game with you, so I'm not entirely sure. But my suspicion is you probably like it more than Colin.
0: Yeah, I mean, this this was a definite, like, big game for me. But, uh, like I said, I'm not going to recommend it to everyone. I think you got to really weigh your kind of choice here. Because, again, my two biggest pros, one of them was Steve's biggest con, in a way. Well, not really. I mean, I guess the action selection and like the and the priority cards, you liked, too. But part of it, the limited Mm -hmm. communication, that was a big con. And then, like I said, the suspenseful ending, I know, again, from personal experience, that some people are going to hate that as well. This is a, in a way, a brave design, because I think there are a lot of things that could put players off. And that gets into my other thing that I got to caution people about. Yes, this is an Arkham game, but besides the fact that the cards are labeled this way and the characters happen to do more damage or more investigating, which does align with like Arkham stuff... There is nothing, (laughs) if you're a fan of Arkham games, in here that's going to, like, draw you in. You don't get cool events. You don't get, uh, you know, varied enemies. You don't get uh, crazy, like, I mean, you get items, but they're, you know, pretty basic. You don't get, like, cool leveling up. You don't get any of the stuff that kind of makes Arkham LCG or Arkham Horror or Eldritch Horror come to life. I would even argue that there's less uh, kind of Arkham theme here than in uh, something like Elder Sign. Like, even there, I feel like you get, like, a little bit more thematic stuff going on as you, like, fight these guys and try to solve these mysteries. So, that's not a, a negative for me. I love Arkham Files, but I really, really love this game for itself. But if you're coming in here because, like, you buy everything Arkham, you might hate this game. If you don't like limited communication, you might hate this game. If you don't like endings that feel random, you might hate this game. So there's a lot to warn you away. With all that being uh, said, it hit me in a sweet spot. I think I'm hanging on to this one. Uh, It's pretty inexpensive, especially if you get it online. I mean, it's not available yet, but from the MSRP that's been uh, advertised, it's pretty inexpensive. So, yeah, I would say... uh, with caution, strong recommend for me, but I know it will not work for everybody.
1: Yeah, I think you nailed one of the aspects I want to talk about on the head for me. And so, well, I'll jump down in a second here, but final thoughts. So, originally, I was actually a little bit interested in this because it's, well, I'm not a huge fan of Arkham, but this one felt like it was a lighter fare of Arkham. And I'm not just, I'm just not into that horror theme as much. And I might actually like this game because it's more... It's different. It feels different. And this is getting exactly to the point that Mike just talked about. With it. Like, if you like Arkham Files game, yes, it has Arkham theme, but it feels different. It feels like a, a pandemic-ish type game or something weird, different like that. And so because it was going to feel different, I was actually, you know, I'm kind of interested. I want to see if this is, like, a horror game I might actually like. And the playtime is really good. It's supposed to be playing fast, and it honestly feels pretty fast. It could take longer than the first few plays, of course, just kind of figuring out how, like, the turn structure works. Not a big deal. The challenge level is, is good. Uh, we lost a lot, <laughs> but we we were able to win too. Uh, the ramp up is really good. The climax is great. But like ultimately, for me, if someone's going to ask me to play this game, I w- I would turn this down, just because of my number one there. Now, if we were to house rule it out, you know I'll, I'll play it, and you know I would actually enjoy it a bit. But just for me personally, Nikon was such a strong effect for me that it's not a recommend for me. And, and I mean. Even if you would house rule it out, I like it, but I don't like it enough to like feel strongly about it, to say, hey, yeah, go play this game. I'm glad that Mike likes it. I think it's a really good example of how games could really jive for some people and not jive for others. So ultimately, it's going to come down to the listeners, right? If you agree with our point, or this real point, hopefully you can maybe near, navigate around these muddy waters and figure out if this game's for you. But yeah, they had, did a lot of cool things in it. I mean, there's a lot of things that we agree upon, like the party card and stuff like that. It's worth a play, for sure, to try it out. But for me, I'm, I'm done with this.
0: All right, so there you go. Some uh, pretty contrasting opinions. Uh, find where you stand in between them somewhere, maybe. And let's get into our design discussion. That was a pretty long review, so we'll try to keep it a bit short. Uh, we're going to talk about how enemy movement is handled in uh, solo and co-op games. And this is pretty specific because enemy movement is kind of a subset of the overall enemy activation or kind of AI automa in a game. So, uh, Steve, you want to start us off? What are some, like, key things that stick out to you about enemy movement in games?
1: Yeah, so I was looking at co-op games and how enemy movement is made, and it kind of broken down to two main categories. And I kind of called them independent movement, and the other ones being dependent on player position. And so, examples of this. Uh, independent can actually be broken down a couple of the other categories as well. So, one of them I said is independent could be simply placing an enemy in a zone. This could be an example of like pandemic. You know, you flip over a card, put a cube down there, or like Captain's Dead, you spawn guys in a certain spot. And and to an extent, um, this game has that too, too, uh, where you can like spawn guys at these gates, but specifically those gates. Pro to this is it's really simple to resolve, but it's not always very interesting, and it, can, it normally requires like swarming, I think, to really approach the challenge, because if you know where things are going, or it's kind of spread out around the board, it's kind of random, you can maybe not propose that much of a challenge until you get a lot of things on the board.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I don't know if I would consider placement of threats the same as movement of threats, but I do agree that this can be satisfying or unsatisfying, because in a way you have less agency over it, and I do like that, you know, when an enemy goes towards your character or whatever, you have some control it becomes part of the tactical picture now i guess in the in a way it's all semantics because you know in pandemic if if instead cubes were placed based on where i was that would be just kind of a different way of modeling me moving to the cubes and curing them like in either case i am taking actions to control where cubes remain and where they are no longer placed i, I don't know but yeah l- l- let's get into the other types because i think that's where i'm going to have more uh, more thoughts on them
1: well the other ones i use talking about is for the independent is something on a track. And so Final Hour definitely uh, falls into this category. We talked about a lot in this episode already about how monsters are moving along this loop on these different regions. Uh, Pandemic Fall of Rome, which Mike mentioned earlier, is another good example of this, where the cubes will move or essentially try to move towards the uh, Rome capital city. Or like a solo game, Black Sonata has that in, in spades because that is the game where you've got a a dark lady, which is moving hidden movement around the board at, on a set path. So one thing I like about this is the ability to strategize, because you know where some hotspots might creep up. And one thing we didn't mention about Final Hours is that you can actually drop down like barricades. And if you examine the board and take your time there, you can actually set up some choke point and really utilize those barricades in, in key locations. And I feel like these games have that nice potential in it.
0: Yeah, I totally agree with you. I think this is a pretty fun way to handle enemy movement. Uh, As Steve said, the kind of strategic and tactical picture becomes much more interesting. You get much more of kind of that solvable puzzle feel. A little variation on this that I enjoy is, like uh, Arkham Horror 2nd Edition had this, is where you have a randomizer. So it's like uh, 75% of the time this guy will move left, but there's a small chance they might move right. Roll a die or draw a card and find out which one it is. So that can, like, inject a little bit of fun, but uh, honestly, I'm totally fine with something like Final Hour or Fall of Rome, where it is a a solved condition, because, you know, there are more enemies coming in, and I have to deal with other stuff. It's not like it makes the game, you know, chess-like, and suddenly everything is simple. (laughs) Well, not the chess is simple. Yeah, a a caveat, though, to this, as we already mentioned, is you really want to make things as user-friendly as possible. You want to make that UI... As clean as possible. And you do want to question how many things do players want to move? <laughs> because, uh, you know, I'm thinking uh, I've been playing a lot of Zombicide Invader lately, which is not the same as this because that is somewhat based on, and uh, you know, player choice and noise and stuff. But it can be a hassle sometimes to move, like, 50 zombies. And if uh, if, it's not, if it's not as simple as just moving toward my character, if I had to, like, for each of those 50 zombies, do I go on blue or purple or green? Like, that would drive me crazy. So certainly ask yourself the question, how many people can I handle on this, like, kind of limited, you know, set track of movement?
1: So those are kind of the two independent examples I could give. The other one I mentioned was, like, dependent on player position. And this one, I didn't really break out into the subcategories. I didn't find any examples that really stood out to me, but maybe Mike will point you out for me. But this one, I felt like, excels in Dungeon Callers. Dungeon Callers do this all over the place. Like, Gloomhaven is one we can obviously mention, where enemies will move towards you within a certain range, and then they'll do their attacks, of course, right, and everything. Like, Sword and Sword Tree Street Masters does this too, where move two spaces towards the closest fighter, attack them, and move away, whatever it is. So this is prevalent in a lot of those tile games. This is one I really enjoy quite a bit because I feel like the enemies are actively interacting with us. The downside to this, though, is it normally has a cost of being you know, the mo- most difficult to resolve. In some cases, like Imperial Assault jumps out at me where, yeah, it's cool. They move to, to me in the fire and they run back. That can be kind of taxing, kind of weird on where they get placed.
0: Dude, you literally mentioned every single example I wanted to bring up, which is great because I can still uh, kind of riff on that. So this is one that is difficult to consider because, like... Prowling on BGG forums and Kickstarter and that kind of stuff, there are very different philosophies on what players want. So I'll use, uh, I think Street Masters and Gloomhaven illustrate this really well. So Street Masters, it's like, move toward your character. And the game says straight out, we don't care which of those hexes they move into... They want to be one space away from you, you can put them on any one space away from you. You can put them on that perfect adjacent hex so that you can throw them with your next action into somebody else and do this awesome combo. We don't care. We just told you how close they get. You decide where they go. That's one side. Gloomhaven has very nuanced rules of how they move and exactly which space, will they prefer this space or will they prefer that space? Will they be slightly to the left or slightly to the right? And the thing is like 95% of the time, it won't matter, but gosh, man, dig into those Gloomhaven forums where they're like, Oh, uh, which, which of these 15, uh, you know, situations is the correct one based on the rules. And that's fine. Like, you know, if you write the rules that way, players are free to do that kind of stuff. I would say personally, God help you go for the Street Masters thing, because look how annoying it gets. Like I, I play Gloomhaven the same as Street Masters. Basically, I'm like, I don't care, whatever. It, like I said, 95% of the time it will not matter whether they're on the left or on the right. So why should I waste my brain power carefully parsing which one it's going to be? But some players hate that. Uh, it, it's definitely a a big psychological thing for a lot of solo gamers, especially. I would say even more than co-op. I think solo gamers often don't like the idea that they are choosing for the AI and they can choose a more advantageous AI choice for themselves. They want the AI to present a challenge. They want the AI to do the best thing for the AI. They would rather have like a a flowchart of 10 things to resolve if that leads, even though, even if it takes a long time, if that leads to the AI doing the optimal choice instead of doing some dumb thing that they chose for them. So that is, you're going to run into that if you make either choice because a lot of players are also like me, want it to be as streamlined as possible. And also, I find it more fun, because as I already said, you can set up your turn to be awesome. The AI turn is not the turn that is awesome. (laughs) Me doing stuff to the AI is the awesome stuff. So I would much rather have the choice to set up my cool combos based on how I control the enemy movement. Uh, Yeah, that's definitely the big thing for me. Now, Imperial Assault is the worst of both options. (laughs) Because... It does give you the freedom, like, you can choose which of the hexes, to an extent, like, uh, you know, it has to be furthest away from, but you'll almost always have, like, two or more spaces to choose from. But, it's so damn complicated, like, the movement rules, and it takes so long, and it's so fiddly that it feels like I'm playing Gloomhaven, and going by the rules, and figuring out exactly where to go. So it's, like, the worst of both. So never do that. Never do what Imperial Assault did. Uh, but if you want to pick kind of Gloomhaven with very specific uh, rules to go through, or if you want to pick uh, something more like Street Masters that gives your, the players the agency, you know, that, that's going to be a personal choice and you're going to piss off some people on one side or the other either way. I will say for spare parts, uh, we have 100% gone with... In fact, <laughs> we, we've simplified enemy movements so much in spare parts because, again, like I'm like, I just don't care. That That's the most boring part. Just get them over with. Get them over there. So, uh, like, terrain, enemies can move over terrain. Other figures, enemies can move over other figures. If, if we say they move three towards you, you pick which of those hexes they move towards. I don't care. Just get them over where they're supposed to be. They attack you. Go do your fun stuff. That's certainly the philosophy of our game. It's a you know fast and furious kind of dungeon crawler. But, again, some people will hate that. So I don't really know what to say here. It's, uh, you know, damned if you do, damned if you don't.
1: Yeah, I will agree with you on that. I, I like the, hey, move towards you and you can decide where they go. It may come down to the fact that, like, i played RPGs and then GM for RPGs where that type of play style is pretty loose. But most of the time it doesn't matter a whole lot. Like, if you're, you know, 10 feet away or 15 feet away from anything, you're there to have fun. Exactly what i say. You want to have the fun stuff on your turn. So I agree with that for sure.
0: And I, I will say, like, some games have cut this out completely in clever ways. Uh, the big one that comes to mind is Assault on Doomrock. There is no, like, spaces in that game. Monsters are either away from you or next to you. Like, that's it. Like, they're, they're, there's two possible states. They are in a group with you or they are not in a group with you. And that means that it's melee or range. And that's all that exists in the game. Or even uh, Sword and Sorcery, I feel like, does not run into this problem at all. And Zombicide doesn't either because you have these very defined areas and very, very narrow paths for movement. So that's another way you can tackle this. Like, hex-based movement or square-based movement, like Street Masters, like Gloomhaven, like Imperial Assault, they invite much more difficulty in figuring out what's going to happen because there's so much, like, widespread choice there. But if you want to, you can go with area-based movement. And then you simplify the entire picture massively. So, you know, if this is, like, torturing you and you're not sure which way to go, hey, <laughs> just try cutting the entire annoying thing out and just make your game area movement, and you'll be good to go.
1: So one thing I want to mention is, I, as I was going through this and trying to think of other ways it can be implemented, I was trying to think, like, are there games that do a combination of these? And I sure enough, there are, and some of them that came to my mind were, like, I I really like the path stuff, and I like it when they in, they interact with our player position. And so I was thinking, like, you know what? SEAL Flex does mm-hmm. this, where That's what I was if you're... Yeah, if you're if you're if they don't know about you or they're moving, they'll move to very specific locations on the board, and these locations are really well designed. In the fact that they they are predetermined to be an excellent spot that's going to be very optimal for the AI and not optimal for you. So it's really hard to go against that. But at some point, they will actually move off that spot potentially to engage you. And there's some rules for that, and that works out fine. But that works like V Commandos does this as well, where I know where they're going and they go, you know, along this path. But if I make noise, I'm visible. Now they're moving towards me. And same thing with U-Boat. And I started noticing a trend, like, as I'm going through some of these games, and maybe it's my bias, but all these games have a strong stealth mechanic in it. And so that may be what draws people to these games. I'm not really sure. But, yeah, that, that's something that jumped out at me.
0: Yeah, I think, and I think a lot of this comes from video games because you've kind of got that you know, the, the the stupid mocked guard AI in video games where it's like, oh, I'll just walk back and forth forever. And if you walk up behind me, I can't even hear you. So yeah, I think when you model that in board games, you do get this interesting mix of like set pathing and then uh, mixed with uh, kind of more dynamic AI. So there you go. Some different options for enemy movement and enemy placement, especially a uh, little bit of a discussion on Dungeon Crawler sort of dynamic enemy movement and different ways to consider that. Uh, Yeah, so a lot to think about, a lot of different ways to do it, and uh, nothing's going to make everyone happy, so do what you love, (laughs) I guess.
1: That's conclude our episode. Thanks for listening, and join us next week when Mike and Peter continue with a Halloween-themed month and cover Zombicide Invader.
0: Thanks, Steve. Thanks for having me on Final Hour. Uh, You can love it or you can hate it, or you can not really care. Anyway,
1: thanks so much for listening. We'll
0: see you at the next stop. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to another episode of the One Stop Co-op Shop podcast. Please check out our YouTube channel at One Stop Co-op Shop. If you want to reach out to us, the best place to talk to us all is on the Slack. See the show notes for details. Also, you can support us on Patreon. Check out patreon.com slash one stop. Thanks for listening and we'll see you all next week with another top five list.